you could be finding your Bible if you've brought one with you. No problem if not, because the scripture references we look at from the Bible will be on the screen. But if you have one, you could turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be back in the book of 1 Timothy, started a, uh, looking at it about a month or so back. It's been a few weeks since we were last there. So we're still in chapter 1, and today we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11 in particular. In a moment, I'll read probably from verse 5, just to get the reminder uh, of what we looked at last time, and then we'll get uh, into it. So if you remember, Paul is writing to Timothy. He has left Timothy in a place called Ephesus, where there is a large uh, church across many different sites in a very big city. And uh, Paul has been there for some years previously. On passing back through town, they realize the church is in a bit of a state of disarray. And, uh, and therefore, it's important that Timothy stays there. Even though it might not be easy, uh, he needs to stay put to help shepherd and teach uh, the church back to a place of health. So I'll read from verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says this, The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. If you want to know what's right at the heart of 1 Timothy chapter 1, the whole chapter, and if you want to know what's right in Paul's heart, leading him to write this letter, look no further than verse 11, which as it happens is slap bang in the middle of the chapter. It is the very center of the chapter. It's the very heart of why Paul is writing to Timothy. And he talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God. There is something that is so glorious, that brings with it such blessing. It's worth being at the very center of our lives and therefore it, it is the reason why Paul is saying to Timothy stay in Ephesus he kind of says that at the beginning of the chapter and he says that at the end of the chapter this is my command to you Timothy stay put why is he saying that because there's something massively important it's the gospel in other words he's not saying Timothy there's something so important about you that you should be right in the center and, and the gospel kind of goes in orbit around your life, he says, look, here's something utterly amazing. It's the glorious gospel of Jesus. Now, Timothy, just put that in the very center and allow your life to go in orbit around it. Timothy might have thought, I don't really want to be in Ephesus. It's not easy. Paul isn't saying tough. 
He's saying, but Timothy, there's something so important here. There's something at stake. The glorious gospel. And uh, there are some dodgy elders. There are some, uh, some dodgy leaders in the Ephesus church who've drifted away. They've wandered away from the glorious gospel. So it's so important that you stay put, hold on, and, and, and teach again and afresh this wonderful gospel that we both, uh, both believe in. Uh, that's the point that then uh, Paul is, is making. And he's saying these, these dodgy leaders, they want to be teachers of the law. And that seems to be what he's putting the spotlight on in these next few verses because it gets repeated so much. They want to be teachers of the law. By the way, they don't understand the law and they don't understand what they themselves are saying about the law. It's a pretty damning verdict on their ministry. But anyway, they want to be teachers of the law. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, is actually what's kind of being said. And it's not for the righteous. The law is made for lawbreakers. So just in a short space of time, he's really put the spotlight on the law. And he said the the problem in Ephesus is people have misunderstood the law. They've misunderstood what it's for. It is good, and there are things that it's very good at, There are other things that the law isn't very good at. And it's as though these leaders have forgotten what it's good for and what it isn't good for. So there's just lots of confusion. Big mess. True faith in the work of Christ can't really emerge and flourish because the focus is so adrift. And uh, we can think perhaps even to today's day and age, what's the biggest threat facing the church? And we're aware of massive problems in our nation. We're aware of lots of threats that might be out there somewhere, that are probably out there somewhere. We think, oh, that's, that's what we've got to protect ourselves from. So come on, everybody, kind of hold in. The greatest danger for the church is she forgets the gospel, is that we forget the good news and we drift. Yeah, it's bound to be dark out there. Let's just make sure it's light amongst us. And that's the kingdom we're Uh, enjoying being a part of. And therefore, let's make sure that we've understood what is the law for? What part does it have to play right now in the gospel? Because if we drift, there's not much chance of us helping other people to find the truth. And sometimes Christians can drift or a church can drift almost because they're focusing on the law so much but they've actually misunderstood what it's about and why we have it. Or go the other way entirely and just ignore it like we're just free free from what i don't know we're just free um and there's a kind of a a vague wooliness that allows us just to kind of like meander along to our own heart's content rather than think actually i'm living for god anyway i'm cutting to the chase you've got four points to listen to yet i better slow down so what is the law good for what role does law play in the glorious gospel What does it do? What does it not do? Who's it for? Who isn't it for? We don't want to turn, we don't want to drift away into confusion or meaningless talk. So we don't know much about what those teachers, so-called or wannabe teachers of the law in Ephesus were saying. We don't know the detail and actually we don't know, really need to know. What we need to know is the glorious gospel and if we know that we'll we'll spot where the error lies and it will help us to grow 
in faith and build well. So what does the law do? What is it good at? Four things. Number one, the law warns. The law warns us. In, and that's true not just of God's law, but any laws that are made. They are put there in a nation or in a society in order to protect the whole community from chaos. So the law speaks to rebels and says, you can't just do what you want to. It has consequences. There will be a punishment for you if you do, because there will be harm and damage on other people if you do. We used to do a kids club uh, a few years ago. My wife and I were involved in it. And it would be an hour and a half on a Saturday morning with maybe even this number of children in the room. Boys sat this side, girls sat this side. It's okay to mix up today. But uh, the kids, that's how it works in the kids club. And there would be loads of crazy songs, drama, uh, messy games, like licking ketchup off a squid, all manner of really yucky things we made the children do, um, uh, all with the aim of sharing the gospel with them. So there was opportunity for, uh, for teaching in it as well. That was what it was all geared up for. But it all started, each, each week, it would start with the three rules of Kids Club. If this club was going to be just... Uh, not just safe, but also fun for everybody. If everyone was going to benefit from this club, we needed to make sure that everyone stuck to the three rules. Rule number one was obey your team captain. This was the daft-looking person at the front who's maybe dressed up as a superhero or something. They were the team captain for the girls or the team captain for the boys. So rule number one was obey the team captain. Rule number two was stay in your seats. You would be invited out to take part in a crazy game. He returned to your seat. So we didn't want people just running around crazy everywhere because we wouldn't be able to look after them very well. So stay in your seats. Worth bearing in mind. Anyway, um, and also, we don't tend to do this on a Sunday either. The third rule was the whistle means silence. So we blow the whistle. When you hear the whistle, you are silent because that might mean that we needed to give you some instruction in an emergency or whatever. Or it might just mean you need to be quiet now because we're teaching you about Jesus. Those were the three rules. There were children at Kids Club, probably, who didn't need to hear them because they would stay in their seats, they would obey their team captain, and they would be silent if the whistle went. So the rules were there for the rebels, the people, the guys and the girls who didn't really want to do that, but they, because they heard it and it was reinforced and you know, there'd be some balloons on the wall and the balloon would get popped if they saw that rule was being... Uh, ignored, and that might mean that people went home, dare we say it, without any sweets that week. So, you know, a bit of peer pressure in there as well. So it's, it was, uh, the rules were there for the rebels. You want to run around like a headless chicken, but the rules are you stay in your seats. Okay, that meant everybody could have a good time, uh, and the whole club could run uh, Smoothly, and that's what laws do. Law, it kind of speaks to the people who would have a tendency to want to break them and say, well, don't, you can't. And maybe Paul is even making this point. He's, he's referring to the law, obviously quite a lot. He's doing that in a general sense, probably referring to everything that God said to Moses that Moses wrote down for the people to do and not to do. 
the law of God. It's also, uh, there could be a reference here to the Ten Commandments. You know, all these phrases that are piled up for the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, to do with relationship with God. And the first few uh, of the Ten Commandments would speak towards that. And then this, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, it's, well, that's fairly extreme. That's like an extreme version of breaking the fifth commandment, which was honor your father and your mother. Um, you know, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, it's, it's the kind of the same all the way through. It's talking about do not commit adultery, uh, do not steal, uh, do not bring false witness. And if uh, there's a final kind of catch-all phrase, for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, perhaps that kind of then can encompass the tenth commandment, which isn't so much a behavior, but an attitude of the heart, which is do not covet. Don't want your neighbor's ox, for example. Well, you can't see that because it's inside. Uh, so whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul's point might be, look, the law is given to lawbreakers to, to restrict, to control, to warn, to prevent people from going to that extreme. Don't do that. Honor your father and your mother. That's what the law is there, to create a safe community where everybody can thrive, to stop that troublesome behavior becoming extreme. So that's what the law can do and does do. It's good at warning, and if it's kept, it's good at protecting. But let's just consider what it can't do. The law might change someone's behavior, but the law cannot change anyone's heart. It doesn't change what somebody wants to do. Just in the moment, it places a restriction. Oh, well, I won't do that because we'll lose all our sweets. There's a consequence. There's a warning. But it doesn't actually change what we want to do. And in fact, sometimes when we hear the law or a law can actually almost fan into flame that desire to go and break it. Can anybody identify with that? Um, so, you know, it's like, please keep off the grass. What? Maybe we just disrespect the law. Well, why is it even there? It looks really nice grass. I'm going to break that law. Yeah, did it, yeah. Um, it, it could be in that manner or, or in some other way. Uh, Paul writes uh, to the Romans describing how this, can, this dynamic can, can happen. He says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's good. Certainly not. Indeed, I would not, not, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant, covetous desire. So I heard the law, I got the command, and I thought, oh goodness, I want to, I want to break it. And sometimes we can just think, you know, in life, I, I want to be more holy, so I'll create some laws and some extra rules for myself. They might have their place. But uh, right, I'm, I'm always going to go to bed at this time. I'm not going to eat anything really tasty and fattening ever again or um, if you see what I mean we might, we might make, make our own rule to try and uh, improve ourselves in some way but are we then surprised when just having decided on a little rule or principle for the next week 
um, we don't always keep it because it hasn't changed our hearts. It hasn't really got into the core of our being. It hasn't really affected our attitudes and what we really want. I really want that cream bun, but I came up with a rule for myself. But I want it even more now. Um, and we can, uh, I'm sure we can identify that. So that's just an example of it. It's important to see what can the law do, what can't it do. It does warn, it doesn't change our hearts. What else does it do? What else is the law good at doing? The law, secondly, convicts. The law declares someone guilty of an offence. So in a court of law, with a judge on his seat and the jury all listening, all the evidence has been laid bare. There's nowhere to hide. Everything has been brought into the light. The the jury go away and they deliberate for a little while and then they come back and of the person in the dock, they say, according to the law, guilty. Not right. That's what the law is very good. Why is it so good at doing that? Well, the law is perfect. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. And because it's holy, good, and perfect in every way, all the time, it always shows up what isn't good or perfect or holy. Every single time. There is no escape. It shows up everything that isn't right about our relationship with God, and it shows up everything that isn't right with our relationship with each other. There's no escape. However much it's broken or not. Now, it just about worked this morning. Hopefully this illustration will work by me, me, me being able to move the table front and centre so you can see it a bit more. This, drum roll please. Thank you. Yes. Here is, well, uh, there's a brand of this game called Jenga. This is something else, but it's basically the same You've got a tower with three bricks laid upon three bricks. And at the moment, for the sake of the illustration, I'm telling you, this is right. This is totally set. It's very square. Every edge is neat. Every brick is in place. So the law turns up and observes this and says, this is good. This is right. This is perfect. How do I know? I know because I am perfect. Maha. Um, so imagine that each brick is one of God's laws being kept, or perhaps not kept, being kept perfectly, very precisely in place. The issue is, and those who have played the game will know, it's very easy for them to get out of line. Look, it's just, now we might stay at this point, look, this is my life, and I'm doing pretty well this week. It's just that one brick that's, that's out of place. But it's not like really out of place, and it's not gone completely, it's not missing, it's there, it's just a bit wonky. So we go, I'm doing pretty well. And the law turns up and says, that's not right. Why? Well, that brick's out of place. I know, but it's, it's all right, it's not bad, is it? I mean, it's not missing, I know, but... Look, if you look at that other one, it's not, there, it's not there at all. 
You know, that, that, maybe that's a command about doing something good. Just never do it. it. It's not just that I sometimes do things wrong. It's that there are lots of things right that I don't do at all. Oh, smashing. So the law turns up and says, guilty, not right. And it says it if the tower looks like that. And it says it if the tower looks like that. Yeah, but well, they're doing really badly. You know, I, I know I've got my faults, but man, have you seen the mess they've made of life? What does the law say? That's not right. That's not perfect. That's not holy. How do I know that? Because I am, the law says. At that point, it's not making a massive distinction. It's, the law doesn't help us kind of put ourselves on some league table. Think, no, the law says everybody's in this position. Um, let's just go to a couple of places where we could uh, see that. One would be in James chapter 2, if I can find it. Tricky. After Hebrews. See, that's where I should have put my bookmark. James chapter 2 and verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So whether your tower looks like that or looks you know, reasonable, you can kind of still recognize the shape and so on, doesn't count for a whole lot. The law says it's not right. Um, We could also turn to uh, Romans again and and chapter 3. What what is the law good at doing? The law is good at convicting us. And so in uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. At this point, we could say, uh, from our perspective, all are under sin. Both those who are trying to live a godly life and those who aren't. Both those who agree with God's law and those who disagree with God's law. No one's right. The person who's by their tower going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to sort this out? Is just as guilty as the person going, yeah, I don't care. Who made the rules anyway? It wasn't me. Yeah, I want to make up my own. Both alike under sin. At that point, it doesn't make any difference. The verdict comes. The conviction comes. Like it or not, guilty. And uh, this is the point that is being made towards the uh, end of Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. Because the law comes along and says, not right. It's just, it's just one brick. Yeah, not right. If you've broken one r- rule on one occasion, that's it. That's what Adam and Eve discovered. Once, one rule, one time, out. Not right. And so, I oh know it's bad news. Um, so you get to the end of uh, this section here in Romans chapter 3. In verse 19 we're told, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, every one of us, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. At some point or another, we come to a realization that there's nothing I can say There's nothing I can do. There's no other evidence I can turn to. Or even if I could turn to it, it does nothing to wipe out my past. 
Even if I could live perfectly now, it doesn't deal with my record. Guilt. And that's what the law is good at doing. It's actually good at bringing us to that point of hopeless, silent despair. I can't do anything. I can't change. Maybe at some points there are occasions where we think, no, I can turn over a new leaf. I can reinvent myself. But ultimately, there is nothing that we can do. And sometimes even the attempt to put something right kind of goes too far. So something's kind of sticking out. There we go, there's one that sticks out. And in my attempt to kind of get it back neat again, oh, look, it's just gone a little bit far the other way. I was trying, I know, but it's still not right. And sometimes that's just what's being revealed to us through life. It is an uncomfortable place to be, but actually it's a necessary step to reach. The law is good bringing conviction of sin and an awareness of the holiness of God. And sometimes it, does, it happens like that, not because someone stood up and started wagging the finger, don't do this, don't do that, but actually by virtue of us coming into contact with something that's good and perfect and holy or, or just has a greater spiritual quality about it. I can remember uh, in a church I grew up in being part of the worship team, which is very much kind of, I enjoyed it, it was just I wanted to be involved. I didn't really see much of God about it. It was just about me wanting to do my thing within the context of corporate worship. Uh, I don't think I would have said it's all about me. That's probably what I thought. Um, and I can remember then this guy coming who was going to lead the team, a guy called Jonathan, and he just spent an evening with the team talking to us about his vision and talking about God. He was talking about wonderful things. The effect on it was, oh, it was, it was kind of this moment of realization. I, I, it was like holding up a mirror and I saw my own heart and what, what, I, what I thought I was doing. And I realized, oh, this is terrible. So poor Jonathan is probably really puzzled. I, I thought I was saying some good stuff. You were saying some great stuff. But the effect of it is to create in me that sense of, oh, no, whoa. And whether it's Isaiah or it's Peter, there are examples in the Bible where people kind of encounter God in, in tremendous glory and, and goodness, and they realize, oh, woe is me, away from me. I'm ruined, I'm a sinner. That's sometimes how it, how it works. So the law is good at convicting. Sometimes dads is, is partly what we do is with our kids. That's not right. Son, daughter, that's not right. And maybe implicit in all of that is basically you're doing quite well in so many areas, but I'm still going to point out to you the thing that isn't right. Now, fathers, the Bible speaks to us and says don't exasperate your children. So we need to be careful that we're drawing attention to the stuff that is just so well done. You're doing such a good job whilst it still is our responsibility to try and help and train and warn and guide our children, but to do so in a way that doesn't uh, exasperate them. Kids, if you sometimes feel, I just can't get it right, I can't get it right, I can't get it right. I mean, that's a pretty depressing place to reach. It's not a bad place to visit as long as you take another step. Why do I say that? Well, the law is good at convicting. It's good at pointing out fault. But the law 
is powerless to change. It's powerless to save us. The law is perfect, but it can't put that perfection into us. It just can't. All it can do is point out error. That's why we have kind of Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 3, where the, just that phrase is used, for what the law was powerless to do. It's powerless. Arms behind its back saying, that's not right, that's not right. But look, it's offering no support. It's not, it's not helping. It's just pointing out mistakes. That's what the law can only do. The writers of the Hebrews would say, you know, the fact that we needed a new covenant was because the old covenant didn't work properly. Why? Well, because the law is weak. The law is useless in that regard of actually bringing about real change. Because it's not what it's there for. It's there to convict us. But thankfully, that's not the place where we stay. There are people who've come under that profound sense of conviction of sin. What else does the law do? Well, we've seen it uh, in, in Romans, Romans 3, verse 19, 20. This desperate scenario, the whole, every mouth is silenced. The whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And if that's all that Romans had to say, then we are a sorry lot. So, let's share Martin Lloyd-Jones' excitement about the very next two words. This is the gospel starting to unfold before our very eyes. There's no one righteous. I'm just aware of my sin. And now I'm just more aware of my sin. And there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, There's no way in which I can become clean, that I can become right with him. There is no hope in me. What on earth can be done about it? I'm on my knees. But now. If you haven't visited but now, you need to today. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law... And the prophets testify. What's the law good at doing? What can the law do? If we go back to our little courtroom analogy, and we're stood in the dock, and the judge is there, and the jury have heard all the evidence, and we've been declared guilty. Now there's these two other witnesses that turn up. And firstly, the law says, you're guilty, I'm perfect, but I'm powerless to help you at this point. But look at him. And at that point, we have Jesus. He is perfect, and he is powerful, and he can save you. And all you have to do is believe in him, Put your faith in him. There's, there's no work in that sense. You're just acknowledging him, believing him. You then can be in him and you can be in his perfect... Now, I'm not going to be able to make this perfect in the time. But you can be in his perfect, holy righteousness where nothing is missing, nothing is out of place. See Jesus, perfect record. See the massive mess you made of life and still sometimes stumble into. But see everything in him is perfect is right and now by believing you can be in 
him. You can be in his righteousness. So now the law doesn't have a word against you because you're in Christ and Christ is righteous. So the righteousness of Jesus has been given to you. So that's what the law turns up and says. I can't save you. I am powerless to help you beyond making you aware of your sin. But look to Jesus. The the law directs our attention to him. So there is now a way of us being saved. And then the prophets are there as well. The other witnesses have come in and they've said, yeah, the law's right. It is him. We saw him coming and now he's here. He's available for you. Come to faith in Jesus. The law and the prophets testify to Jesus. Yes. There's a way of being right with God that doesn't depend on us. Therefore, it's not vulnerable to those little knocks in life where things start to go really wrong. Oh, goodness, what have I done? Uh, Our standing before God isn't vulnerable like that because it's Jesus and his perfect record in our account. So the law testifies. Does that mean, though, Well, we're free. We're free from the law. Or rather, what does it mean to be free from the law? So in Romans chapter 8 again, just at the beginning there, in verse 1 onwards, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Well, I've I've been set free from the law. That's wonderful. I've I'm right with God, and now I don't have to pay any attention to its righteous requirements. So those have been put into me by virtue of Jesus, so I'm now free to live as I please. I can write my own laws. I get to choose what holiness looks like, because I please God anyway, just by being me. And sometimes when we're celebrating our salvation we can kind of just drift into a slightly murky territory. Thank you, Lord God, for my freedom. What are you free from? Thank you, Lord, I'm free. I've been set free. I'm free. What are you free from? If we can't answer that question, we are already drifting into a weird place. So let's let's be clear on our freedom. Let's celebrate our freedom, but let's be clear on what it actually is that we are celebrating. We are free from condemnation. We are free to now obey him by the power of the Spirit. That's what we could not do by the flesh. Now righteousness has been given to us. Look, Paul is not saying, the right, well, the law is for the, un, is for the unrighteous, so you can just ignore it from now on. Look how in 1 Timothy, he kind of lists all of that grim stuff, who the law is for, And then in this phrase says, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. Well, I don't have to conform to anyone now or anything. I'm free. Now look. Whatever conforms, whatever whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So look, the gospel doesn't lead us into more sin. The gospel helps us to walk free from sin so that by, from one degree of glory to the next, we're being transformed into Jesus' likeness. That's God's great aim. And that's what one day we will be. We'll be, we'll be like Jesus. So the law testifies. It points us to Jesus. What else does it do? Fourthly, 
Well, the law also teaches us. It shows us what godliness looks like. It shows us what holiness looks like. Not that we go about trying to become that in the flesh. Oh my goodness. But by living in the spirit. In other words, if Moses wrote it down, and then if Jesus affirmed it, or the apostles put the spotlight on it, we can know that the Holy Spirit wants to write it in our hearts and wants us to become more like it. So if it's there in the Old Testament and Jesus and the apostles say, yeah, this is part of, it. This is part of the gospel, then we know that the Holy Spirit wants to write it in our hearts. So in Hebrews... Chapter 8, this was always the deal. This was always the plan. In Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, here's one of the prophets, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So when we, as God's new covenant community, are with him face to face in heaven forever, we'll not have to search for some scrap of paper. Where did I put it? What does it say again? How do I please God? Oh, right, okay. Right, right, I must... We won't have to go searching like that because by the Holy Spirit, it's just all going to be here. We won't have to instruct each other, know, know the Lord, what, what, what do you mean? What's, what's God like? His Spirit in us will mean there's, there's, no, there's no shadow, there's no confusion. We don't have to turn to a chapter and verse necessarily to say, well, what does God want for my life? How should I live for him? No, it will just all be here, right here and just flowing out from us. In the here and now, for those who are in Christ, that may already be the case for a large extent. With God's help, so much of the tower has already been rebuilt by the Holy Spirit's help. And just that every now and again, he comes along to us and says, here's another brick. Here's God's heart. This is what God is like. This is what God wants for you. This is God's best for you. Let's work together now on putting it in its right place. And that's what we do with the help of the Holy Spirit. The danger is 
if God is convicting us, just drawing something to our attention, we say, no, 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 no. I'm free from the law. I'm free. I don't, I don't have to pay attention to that anymore because I'm not under condemnation. So don't come to me with your helpful conviction because I'm not under condemnation. Well, you're not under condemnation, but sometimes the Holy Spirit does come and convict us with reference to the Bible and says, come on, let's work together. Come with me. It's not just you and your effort now. It's not just you and the flesh. But together, by the Holy Spirit, and sometimes, yeah, things get out of place a little bit. We just, we're becoming more like Christ. Somehow or another, that's what the dodgy elders of Ephesus were drifting away from. Perhaps by overly focusing on the law. On the law. Actually, like the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, they had a lot of knowledge, but they couldn't see Jesus for toffee. They couldn't see who he really was. They didn't recognize the grace of God walking before them. They just got preoccupied with law and tradition. Do you remember the drumbeat from a few weeks ago? Grace and faith. Grace and faith. I get to know you, Lord God. I get to walk with you. We're on an adventure together. Oh, law and works. Oh, I should. I should. I should pray. Oh, it's so hard. I have to do this. I have to do that. Law, 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 law. No, no, no. This is what I want to do. This is what I've been set free to do. And now I get to walk with God and encounter his help and power to enable me to live in that. Because that's the best place to be. That's where I want to be. I want to follow him. I want to live for him by the Spirit, by grace, by faith. So yes, set free from law, but that doesn't mean, doesn't mean focus on it. I don't know why I've gone over here for the law, but I have. It doesn't mean overly get preoccupied and have it all distorted, but it doesn't mean ignore it either. It means no, step by step, he's helping me to be more and more like Jesus. I'm already in him. I'm already, I already have that right standing. Now he's, he's at work in me, transforming me. I can kick against it, or I can cooperate with it, and that's what we want to do let's let's not get distracted let's be clear on what freedom means let's be clear that the law is it's weak it can't achieve everything that place of being convicted of sin is uncomfortable but allow it to point you to jesus you know kids if sometimes you just feel like oh it's always the same thing i i can't control my temper or I don't always get on with my brothers and sisters. I find it really hard. We, actually, we all find a few things hard. There's lots of things that don't come naturally to any of us, including your mum and dad. But whilst not nagging, we just all want to come to a place where no, we recognize, I really need Jesus. And I really need his Holy Spirit to help me to live for him. It's not some great burden we're learning to keep in step with the Spirit. Amen.